I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal, and today our guest is David Makarichin, the chair of the Emerging Technologies Group at O'Melveny and Myers and head of the firm's Northern California Corporate Department. David, thank you for joining us today. David, uh, it's great to be on and thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First of all, your background, how you came to practice corporate law. Secondly, a comparison of the last 12 to 18 months in Silicon Valley, which have been very active, and the late 1990s, your work with two entities, Silicon Catalyst and Momentum. And then uh, finally, your love of Asian street food. So with that, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you came to practice law. Well, if I may just whet people's appetite with talking about Asian street food, that developed from my stint in running our firm Southeast Asia practice. So I was in Singapore for five years from 2008 to 2013, and I reached new highs in terms of sampling the local cuisine and getting into it. So I can talk about that all day, but maybe we'll start with the background on myself prior to that. So I graduated from law school in 1993 from UVA Law School. You know, I'll just mention one of my classmates in that class. You know, I remember talking to him around graduation. He was telling me that he was going to Wilson Sonsini in Silicon Valley. And I didn't know what Silicon Valley was or what Wilson Sonsini was. I mean, this was pre Netscape, right? This was my first law job. The computers were not hooked up to one another. So, so he was way, way, way ahead of me. But I started my practice in Chicago. I worked on what was considered a tech IPO then, which was a company that made coaxial cable, right, for telecom. I thought that was tech. And it was a big part of tech in the 90s. Yeah, it was. I mean, even back then, I mean, that was kind of cutting edge and how it worked and how it connected to a set-top box and all of that. But what I really enjoyed about that IPO was how all the pieces for a very big deal came together, and then how you read about it in the paper the next day after it priced. I thought that there was a, an excitement and a, a, you know sort of an energy that you got from putting a deal together, and I was kind of hooked. And that led me to start thinking about venture capital and reading more and understanding more about what was going on in technology. I subsequently joined a firm called Grobeck, Flager & Harrison. That was one of the big San Francisco firms, which was really out front in the tech scene in the 90s. And I was in the Denver office of that firm by now. So I'm gradually moving my way out west. And what I realized is that there was no place like Silicon Valley in terms of the number of deals, the types of deals, the interesting companies. I had a chance to come as a mid-level associate into our Palo Alto office, and I moved temporarily in the mid-90s, and I've, I've really never left Silicon Valley except for my time in Asia. And I loved it. I loved what we were doing there. It was a 24-7 kind of operation where deals were happening at all hours of the day or night, uh, IPOs, venture capital, M&A. And I, I was hooked. And the late 90s, I was a reporter in New York at that point. And when you would talk to someone from Silicon Valley in, say, 97 or 98, 
it, it felt like you were talking to someone in a different country. The mindset was just so totally different. Did you have a sense of that when you were working there, that this was just a different universe than anything in Chicago or the East Coast? You know, I didn't. I didn't have that feeling. I mean, I felt like there was a Silicon Valley way that things were done. I felt like there was an incredible deal environment. I felt like we knew tech and tech deals at a level that some of our counterparts that weren't living and breathing it, you know, they they didn't they didn't have that depth of knowledge in my view. But beyond that, I didn't feel like there was anything particularly special about it other than we worked all the time and there were deals going on all the time. I mean, I remember like back in 99, we would just organize the IPOs so that you could you know, you could get one kicked off just as the, the prior one was pricing. And it was just that kind of environment. My wife, my girlfriend at the time would wonder why I would not come home for days on end. And it's because uh, it was the deals that were going on. And I would simply say, you know, this is not normal. I haven't seen a market environment like that in my career. I just can't see this continuing. And sure enough, it lasted, you know, only a few more years. So, you know, I think that that was a very unique time. And I think those of us who have been around long enough to have gone through the boom and bust and that cycle, and then a couple others that followed it, realized that these periods of intense activity are not going to last forever. You need to kind of keep a sense of perspective on them, both for yourself and what you're doing, what your clients are doing, what your firm might be doing, and realize that people start talking about permanent shifts in this or you know it's time to to start realizing that no things are somehow going to go back to the middle at some point that's my perspective anyway and does the market you're in or we're in now and perhaps we've been in for the last 12 months or so remind you at all of the late 90s you know how would you characterize the similarities and differences you know in in some ways it does but I came back to Silicon Valley at the beginning of 2013. And and one of the main reasons why I came back is that our firm had recognized that there was going to be a tremendous uptick in the environment here. And and the opportunity for our firm was in Silicon Valley. So I came back from Asia. And from that time coming back 2013 and to where we are now, it has been a fairly consistent rise up in everything, in types of deals, numbers of deals, value of deals. It's not just the exit. The startup activity has been very, very strong as well. That does feel like how it felt in the 90s period. It just Things kept building and building and building up to 2000. Then you had the crash in the first part of 2001. Now, hopefully... That's not the direction we're going here. But when we started going through the SPAC mania that has gripped all of us, particularly at the beginning of this year, end of last year, you started to feel that things had sort of lost a little bit of normalcy. And myself and many of my teammates were working all around the clock on these deals. It did kind of feel like the 90s. But I think there's some pretty big differences as well, and we can get into those. But I think the companies are different. The deals are bigger. I think there's much more variety in terms of the types of things you're seeing in the market than we did back then, which was really the dot-com craze. It was mostly about dot-com. 
And so things are, are really quite a bit different, I think, in that respect. But sometimes just with the volume of work and deals that are coming across our desks, it's hard to not feel a little bit like that crazy period back in the late 90s. Now, obviously, in the late 90s, you would have been an associate, a junior and senior associate. Now you're a partner with management responsibilities. How does the labor market that law firms compete in feel to you now as compared to the late 90s? Almost every lawyer I talk to mentions how hard it is to find and retain, especially mid-level and senior level associates. Do you find yourself in, in that war for talent as well? Yeah, I mean, no doubt about it. That is kind of similar in that we are really looking for bringing talent in and just to help us with the variety of work. I mean, at our firm, we're careful in terms of not getting too far ahead. We're not going to build this massive army and hope that we get the work. So we're a little bit more cautious. But O'Melveny, like all the other firms that are active in Silicon Valley, and probably also in other geographies, we're all short of people. It reminds me back in the 90s, we had the same thing going on. And at Brobeck, one of the things we thought of was, let's start calling into the Canadian firms, particularly into the winter, you know, when it's cold up there in Toronto, because those are great lawyers up there with great experience, and they might want a little bit of a change of scenery. And we actually got some great lawyers out of Canada. Now, I'm not sure that we've started doing that yet, but we are definitely seeing these talent wars. And it's a seller's market for the associates. And I think some of the compensation that they're able to get in this market is reflective of that. But ultimately, we're very careful on our hiring. And the risk for us is that we don't want to part from our practices, what's worked for us in the past, bringing in people that fit well and are aligned with what we're trying to achieve. So it's particularly difficult for us. We're not going to relax what we're looking for in our approach just because we're in a tough market. And that sometimes makes it harder for our existing folks because we're not always fully staffed up. And my sense is as well that the leverage at law firms, the ratio of associates to partners is lower now than it was in the 90s, just generally that you started to see that shift in the mid aughts and it's persistent. So it's not like 25 years ago where firms may have planned on having four or five associates for each partner. Now you probably want three associates for each partner, which just means fewer associates in the system generally. I think that's absolutely right. Obviously, the big deals still require very big teams. So most of the deals that we work on, particularly when we get to the later stages, you're going to have teams of folks and that creates leverage, like you mentioned. But we can do a lot more, a lot more efficiently 25 years in than we could back then. I mean, with the advent of technology and how it's really changed our profession, we can do just a lot more work with fewer folks. I think that's ultimately going to continue. It's very interesting to think about how tech impacts what we do. So I think you're right. But still, despite that, we still need lots of people because that has just meant there's more deals that we can work on. So It's not like the work has slowed down. It's just that maybe the configuration of people that we have on these deals has changed since those days. Shifting to Silicon Catalyst, tell us a little bit about that and its work with semiconductor companies. One of the things that was interesting, we're sort of talking about the late 90s to now, right? And 
When I got here, one of the largest industry sectors that we were active in was semiconductor. And there were just, I, I don't know how many, but it seems like hundreds of semiconductor startups. And that could be in places in the whole ecosystem of the semiconductor equipment companies, you know, EDA companies, back end, front end, every, everything. And we represented companies throughout all of those and that were investors, right? And this wasn't obviously, you know, people forget, but Silicon Valley started as primarily a hub of semiconductor companies, right? And all the things that we did later, that was a, an outgrowth of that. What, what happened over the years is that fewer and fewer of those new startups in that sector coming onto the scene as the industry largely shifted to Asia. And that really changed things. And I've really seen a shift where a lot of what we're seeing in our group are, are software companies, marketplaces, information technology companies, not to mention biotech and life sciences, but the hardware startups, fewer and far between. And Silicon Catalyst is an incubator for new semiconductor-related technologies. And a bunch of Silicon Valley semiconductor veterans who had been in these companies over the years got together and said, look, what can we do to make it easier and to facilitate the innovation in semiconductor right here in the US, not in China, not in other places in Asia, not in Europe, but here where it really began. And it's been very interesting. So we were one of the founding members of that organization. And what they do is that they've gotten a lot of the major semiconductor companies as sponsors. They provide in-kind services to the startups. A lot of the people are coming directly out of universities or academia or spinning out of other companies. And they can facilitate a lot of the basic work that is used to get one of these companies up and off the ground and then allow introductions to different investors, whether they be corporate investors or financial investors. So it's been great to see. But you know, I think it's what the interesting part of that is that you know, you wouldn't have needed a silicon catalyst 20 years ago. There's enough investment activity and you know, enough of these new startups coming on. You didn't need that. But now you do as the as the industries matured and developed and shifted its focus from the US to Asia. But some of that shift too is just the significantly declining margins in semiconductors. How does the industry look different now than it would have? in the 70s and 80s when you just had enormous growth in demand for semiconductors in in a whole range of applications that would not have used chips before yeah i mean it's it's interesting it's a it's it's a i mean to me it's fascinating whenever you start getting into the history of silicon valley and you think about how it's developed and changed and, and you look at the bigger trends I'm very fortunate to have had a front row seat to all of this and to to kind of watch it all develop. But I think before the innovation was sort of around Moore's law, how can you make them smaller and better? And that's going to continue. But, you know, I think what you're seeing now is you're seeing and we're experiencing right now, we're, we're in the middle of a historic semiconductor shortage. Part of the reason for that is the demand for high-end chips in all kinds of different devices that we never would have contemplated would have chips. That's what we're seeing now. So there's a huge need to innovate around those different types of applications. 
and whether it's your handset, whether it's your refrigerator, whether it's your car, whether it's whatever, it's, you know, it's all happening. The other big area, of course, is the AI chips. And that's where we've seen a lot of very interesting startups. But, you know, the computing power that's needed to power the AI models that are becoming prevalent in all these different places, there's a lot of innovation going on there. So, I also think it's a great time to be in the market to understand semiconductors. And it's only just beginning. I mean, this is not a trend that's going to stop. I mean, I think the connectivity of things, the need for more and more computing power is just going to continue. By the 90s, the chips had become a very, very capital-intensive business. Are are the, the startups you're working with at Silicon Catalyst capital intensive in that way? Or are they more focused on designing chips that some other entity will ultimately manufacture? Yeah, I mean, I think I think both. I mean, there's no no question that doing one of these startups is going to be more capital intensive than you would for another kind of company, like a software company. And of course, the manufacturer of, and in some cases, the design of these things are outsourced to different players. So yeah, the way these companies develop is definitely different. But I still think there is a concern that many investors have in investing in a potentially capital intensive investment opportunity. And that's where Silicon Catalyst comes in because they provide a lot of those services, a lot of those tools that you'd need on the front end through the existing members that, you know, it's in their interest to see these innovations as well, potential acquisition targets for them, potential partners for them. And I think that it's a great model. I think it's really working. And Silicon Catalyst is not just straight semiconductor companies. Other types of hardware companies are in there too. And any kind of company that could benefit from those sorts of tools and services that the big semiconductor majors could provide, that's a good candidate for Silicon Catalyst. What, one of the striking things about this is, is that one of the themes that those of us not in Silicon Valley heard endlessly for years is that software is eating the world. But the premise of Silicon Catalyst in some ways is that there are still a lot of physical devices the refrigerator is not going anywhere. Cars, modes of transportation are going to be physical. And therefore, there will continue to be a need for semiconductors in those devices from small devices to really large ones. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, software can't continue to eat the world unless you have the computing power to power it. And so the two, in my view, go together. It's not like you can't stop innovating on the hardware side just because software is becoming more prevalent. And I think that's borne out. And tell us a little bit about Momentum, which is an O'Melveny initiative to work with smaller emerging tech companies. Yeah. As you may know, O'Melveny has a tremendous roster of well-known clients, including in tech. So we represent some of the biggest companies in tech. A lot of it is in IP litigation, other disputes, some corporate work as well, very significant corporate work, particularly has been in the semiconductor space. But sometimes what we don't want to lose sight of and we didn't want to lose sight of with Momentum is the Silicon Valley way of starting the company small and growing them into big companies. So with Momentum, what we've done is organized a group of our lawyers that have the relevant experience, the relevant practices into a group that can provide that world-class legal services to the startups. 
And Momentum's our website where we offer a lot of content, late-breaking developments of interest to our technology companies, especially our smaller and, and emerging growth technology companies. And that's how we sort of brand our technology practice. So it's been a great way for us to distinguish the broader O'Melveny from our very specific focus on technology. And it's always one of the challenges in a tech practice for law firms has always been that the need to work with smaller emerging companies that have much more significant cost constraints than a, than a larger public company would. How do you manage that tension today in, in your work with those emerging companies? Yeah, so that is not a problem for us. I came to O'Melveny in 2003 from the ashes of the dot-com bust, from the ashes of my prior firm, Robeck, Flager, and Harrison. And at that time, you know, our chair of the firm at the time, I think he had made a few big bets. One of them was developing our Asia practice in a very big way. And one was developing our technology practice in a very big way. And so I think there was about 35 of us who came from Brobeck to O'Melveny. O'Melveny really didn't have, prior to that time, much experience with raw startups to exits. And over the last, I don't know, almost 20 years that we've been here, that's really become a core part of our corporate offering and one of the things we're really known for. And so how do we do it? Well, first of all, we need to have some internal flexibility. Once you buy into the notion that you can have a very small company that can grow into a very significant company and you have examples of that, it becomes very easy internally to get the kind of flexibility that you need. Secondly, we're incredibly efficient at doing this. So we can render the services that we need in the practice in a very efficient way. How do we do it? We have systems in place, technology that we use, and we train up our people really well. I'd also say, you know, our, our corporate paralegals are tremendous. They're part of the puzzle. We've really imported the Silicon Valley method of representing startup companies and venture capitalists into our practice. And it's become kind of core to what we do. So those are the two ways to do it. I mean, I think the third element of it is that there's always a balance. So in my practice, I've got what I call a buy side and a sell side. My buy side practice is representing large technology companies that buy smaller companies. Less concerns there about the fee pressures that you're mentioning and the, the smaller budgets. I mean, everybody's on some budget, but you know, the bigger the company, the more they're willing to invest in some of these transactions. And then I balance that with what I call the sell side. So that can be the small startups that are coming straight out of the universities, the early, you know, two people and a dog kind of thing sitting in a garage to the seed finance, series A finance, mid-stage companies that ultimately exit. So you, you look for a balance in your practice where the bigger deals help underwrite the smaller ones, if you will. And do you find you're able to deliver legal services to the emerging companies more efficiently, in part because you're able to deliver legal services generally more efficiently than you would have been able to do in the 90s? Absolutely. We have a pretty advanced internal set of systems that we use that were pretty unfathomable back in the 90s, including tremendous investments we make in knowledge management, precedence, automation, all that kind of stuff. 
that we just couldn't do. And so I think that's right. I mean, I think as we've developed, as technology has developed, we've been able to deliver our services much more efficiently. And our clients expect that. I mean, that's why they come to us. They come to us because we know how to do these companies. We've seen how these terms impact future financings, how they impact an exit. We know we have a good sense of the market. They know that we see enough of these that we know exactly what to do. They do not want to go to a law firm that is only seeing tech maybe 5 or 10% of the time. And finally, let's talk a little bit about your love for Asian street food and maybe start with a little description of your time in Singapore as a lawyer, which then was a very different market than Silicon Valley. Although since then, tech has become much more important to legal practice in Asia. So as you may know, O'Melveny was one of the leading U.S. law firms in China. We, I think we were the first law firm to have a license of practice on the mainland in Shanghai. And we grew to having one of the largest U.S. presence law firm in, in China. So at that time, we were noticing that while we were extremely strong in North Asia, we were not really participating in Southeast Asia. So I was at a point in my career where the firm wanted to open an office there, but they needed an O'Melveny person that could anchor that office. So I gladly volunteered and I ended up moving there. I intended to get the office up and running for a year or two, but I ended up staying almost five. And when I was there, Singapore was not very much about tech. I mean, Singapore has always been technologically advanced, but there was really no local venture capital industry. I remember a fund coming to me when I was there, and it's anything that looked and smelled like tech sort of came my way. And I remember fun coming over and saying, yeah, we know we've raised $10 million. And then from a US standpoint, this was like somebody's private friends and family fund. This wasn't a real, <laughs> but that's where we were. But fast forward to now, Singapore is a vibrant tech market. I mean, there are some tremendous startups there. What they set out to do in Singapore, they usually achieve, I found. They wanted to develop a tech industry that was really independent of the government, that was entrepreneurial, that had a lot of young people that provided job opportunities and entrepreneurial opportunities for their population. And this includes not only the companies, but the funds around them and the infrastructure. So when I was there, though, that was very much in its infancy. So the deals that I were doing were much bigger public securities offerings, private equity buyouts. Etc. But the practice was fascinating there. It was interesting. But yeah, that's where I really got into my love of the Asian street food. And in Singapore, street food has been redefined. At one point, the government moved all of the what they call the hawker centers, the street food vendors, into these kind of enclosed indoor places to make sure they were all cleaned up. But they continued selling the same types of foods that historically would have been sold in street carts in these what they call hawker centers. And so what I would do whenever I had a chance is I would go into the most random hawker center, which could be basement of a building or there's one in a parking garage that I used to love to go to. And you know, I just go to the one where it had the longest line because I knew that was going to be fantastic. And I had a wonderful opportunity to sample some of the great foods of Southeast Asia. And what's great about Singapore is that the concept of fusion foods really started there. It's a, it's an amalgamation of Chinese, Indian, Malay, and European. 
all in one and they do a wonderful job you know some of the street vendors in singapore have been awarded michelin stars because of the quality of the food so it's it's really fantastic you could go there and you could eat your entire vacation if you like that kind of food and, and are there any either restaurants or street vendors like that in San Francisco? I remember one chef, San Francisco chef, who came out with a book, Hawker Fair. Yeah, yeah. No, it's hard to find. And, and you know, I'm not aware, and I, I'm not the encyclopedia of restaurants in San Francisco, so there may be things that are out there. But there's some wonderful smaller places, but you've got to dig to find the authentic Singapore food because it's just, it's not as pervasive here. But any chance I get to find one place or another, I absolutely will. I have some favorites. There's a couple of places up in the city, which are excellent. And one of the places I've enjoyed, I discovered a local food truck that's going in around the Bay Area with absolute authentic sautés, which are the grilled beef on a skewer that you have with a very spicy peanut sauce. So these are the kinds of things that I look for any chance I get. And then when I go back to Singapore, unfortunately, I haven't been able to do so with the pandemic recently. But usually the first thing I do after I land is I head over to one of these. I'm usually jet lagged and on some God knows what time zone. But you can rock up at any hour of the day or night and get yourself a bowl of laksa, which is the noodles in the spicy coconut sauce and have that for your breakfast or maybe chase it with some kaya toast, which is a toast with a coconut palm spread on it. And you're good to go for the rest of the day till you get to lunch, of course. That sounds fantastic. David, thank you so much for joining us. David, it's been my pleasure. Great to talk with you and look forward to talking with you again at some point. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus. <laughs>